Chapter 14, Part 3 of More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Hand. More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. Chapter 14, Part 3. The year 1877. Death of her cousin, the Reverend Charles H. Payson. Illness and death of Professor Smith. Let us take our lot in life just as it comes. Adorning one's home. How much time shall be given to it? God's delight in his beautiful creations. Death of Dr. Buck. Visiting the sick and bereaved. An ill turn. Goes to Dorset. The Strangeness of Life, Cowan Fells, The Bible Reading, Letters. During the early months of 1877, Mrs. Prentice's sympathies were much excited by sickness and death among her friends. I spend a deal of time, she wrote, at funerals and going to see people in affliction, and never knew anything like it. And wherever she went, it was as a daughter of consolation. The whole year, indeed, was marked by a very tender and loving spirit, as also by unwanted thoughtfulness. But it was marked no less by the happiest, most untiring activity of both hands and brain. During the month of January, she wrote the larger portion of a new serial for the Christian at work. It would seem as if she foresaw the end approaching and was pressing toward it with eager steps and a glad heart. To her eldest son, New York, January 28, 1877. The great event of last week was Cousin Charles's unexpected death. Your father and I attended the funeral in his church, which was crowded to overflowing with a weeping audience. Most of the ministers we know were there. Cousin G came on Friday night and said nothing would comfort him like hearing your father preach, and he promised to do so. I went with him to Inwood, and we have just got back. Your father preached a beautiful sermon and paid a glowing tribute to Cousin Charles in it, and I am very glad I went. After the funeral yesterday, I came home and put up some chicken jelly I had made for Professor Smith and carried it down to him. There I met Dr. Gould of Rome, who had seen him, and said he considered his case a very critical one. February 4th. Your father was invited to repeat his letter on recollections of Hurst Monceau and Rydell Mount, and did so yesterday morning in our lecture room, which was filled with a fine audience, mostly strangers. What have you on your natural bracket? And have you put up your leaves on your windows? Mine are looking splendidly. H is burning one of them with a magnifying glass your father gave me at Christmas. The sun does lie delightfully in this room. I must now go to the Smiths. All send love. Professor Smith passed away peacefully in the early morning on the 7th of February. One of his last conscious utterances was addressed to Mrs. Prentice. I have ceased to cumber myself with the things of time and sense, and have had some precious thoughts about death. Henry Boynton Smith was one of those men who enrich life by their presence and seem to render the whole world poorer by their absence. He was strongly attached to Mrs. Prentice. For more than forty years, the relation between him and her husband resembled that of brothers. Mrs. Smith was one of her oldest and most beloved friends, and for a quarter of a century the two families had dwelt together in unity. And then, with one of the saddest and one of the happiest events of her domestic history, the burial of her little Bessie, at which he ministered with Christ-like sympathy, and at the baptism of her Swiss boy who bore his name, 
he was tenderly associated. It is not strange, therefore, that his death, as well as the wearisome years of invalidism which preceded it, touched her deeply. What manner of man he was, how gifted, wise, and large-hearted, how devoted to the cause of his Lord and Savior, what a leader and master workman in sacred science and in the Church of Christ, how worthy of love and admiration, all this may be seen and read elsewhere. To Mrs. Condict, February 14th, 1877. Before I go down to the meeting at Mrs. D's, I must have a little chat with you and reply to your last two letters. I felt like shrieking aloud when you contrasted your life with mine but it is impossible to state fully why. Yet I may say one thing. I have had to learn what I teach in loneliness, suffering, conflict, and dismay, which I do not believe you have physical strength to bear. The true story of my life will never be written, but whatever you do, don't envy it. And I do not mean by that that I am a disappointed, unhappy woman. Far from it. But I enjoy and suffer intensely, and one insulting word about Greylock, for instance, goes on stinging and cutting me amid forgetfulness of hundreds of kind ones. Let us take our lot in life just as it comes, courageously, patiently, and faithfully, never wondering at anything the Master does. I am concerned just as you are about my interest in things of time and sense, but I have not the faintest doubt that if we could have all we want in Christ, inferior objects would fade and fall. But we live in a strange world, amid many claims on time and thought. We cannot dwell in a convent and must dwell among human beings and fall more or less under their influence. We shall get out of all of this by and by. February 27th. This winter I am drawing in charcoal under an accomplished teacher. She has so large a class that I had to withdraw from it and take private lessons. She has invited A to assist her in teaching little ones twice a week, which materially curtails her bill. A was introduced to one youth, aged five, as Monsieur So-and-so. He had his easel, his big portfolio, and charcoal in great style, but only took one lesson. He hated it so. I don't see what his mother was made of. I sympathize with your fear of spending too much time adorning your home, etc., etc. It is a nice question how far to go and how far to stay. But I honestly believe that a bare, blank, prosaic house makes religion appear dreadfully homely. We enjoy seeing our children enjoy their work and their play. Is our father unwilling to let us enjoy ours? In a German book I translated, a little boy is very happy in making a scrapbook for a little friend, and God is represented as being glad to see him so happy. And I don't believe he begrudged your making me that pretty picture, and did not wish me to make yours. By the by, when you have time, tell me how to do it. It seems to me we are meant to use all the faculties God gives us. To abuse them is another thing. I feel that I am having a vacation and wonder how long it is going to last. I do not know how I should have stood the tremendous change in my life through my husband's change of profession if I had not had this resource of painting. Oh, how I do miss his preaching. How I miss my pastoral work. Dr. Buck is on his dying bed and longing to go. To her eldest son, New York, March 11, 1877. We had an excellent sermon from Dr. Vincent this morning, which he repeated by request. Last evening we had Chi Alpha, and as I saw this body of men enter the dining room, I wondered whether I had borne any minister to take up your father's and my work when we lay it down. Eighteenth. I thought within myself, as I listened to a sermon on the union of Christ and the believer, whether I should have the bliss of hearing you preach. Let me see, how old should I have to be at soonest? Sixty-two, the age at which my ancestors died, unless they died young. 
I got a beautiful letter a few days ago from a minister in Philadelphia, the Reverend Mr. Miller, who has 1,300 members in his church, and says if he could afford it, he would give a copy of Greylock to every young mother in it. I went to Mrs. P.'s funeral on Friday. She wanted to die suddenly and had her wish. She ate her breakfast on Tuesday, then went into the office and arranged papers there. Her husband went out at 10, and shortly after she began to feel sick, and the girls made her go to bed. One of them went out to do some errands, and the other sat in the room. She soon heard a sound that made her think her mother wanted something, and on going to her found her dead. Dr. P. got home at 12, long after all was over. He told me it was the most extraordinary death he'd ever heard of, but his theory was that a small clot of blood arrested circulation, as she had no disease. I had to talk with C. about his wife's sudden death. I had already written him and sent him a note. I cut from the evening post the slip I enclosed about Mr. Moody's Christian drawer. I wish I could hope for as sudden a death as Mrs. P.'s. To Mrs. Condict, April 16, 1877. I am glad you liked the picture. Did you know that you too can get leaves and flowers in advance of spring by keeping twigs in warm water? I had forsythia bloom, and other things leafed beautifully. It is said that apple and pear blossoms will come out in the same way if placed in the sun in glass cans. I have been thinking lately that if I enjoy my imperfect work, how God, who has made so many beautiful as well as useful things, must enjoy his faultless creations. My work is still to go from house to house where sickness and death are so busy. Mrs. F. G. has just lost her two only children within a day of each other. Neither her mother nor sister could go near her during their illness or after their death because of the flock of little ones in their house, and it was not safe to have a funeral. Dr. Hastings made a prayer. He said the scene was heartrending. May 3rd. Dr. Storrs preached to us last Sunday and said one striking thing I must tell you on the passage. They were stoned, were sawn asunder, they were tempted, etc. He said many thought the word tempted out of place amid so many horrors, but that it held its true position, since few things could cause such anguish to a Christian heart as even a suggestion of infidelity to its Lord. To this, a compass adds the hell of not knowing whether one had yielded or not. May 17th. Misery loves company, and so I am writing to you. Perhaps it will be some consolation to you that I, too, have been knocked up for two weeks, one of which I spent in bed. Nothing serious the matter, only put down and kept down. Not agreeable, but necessary. How astounded we shall be when we wake up in heaven and find our hateful old bodies couldn't get in. M is making, and H has made, a picture scrapbook for a hospital in Syria. Your mother might enjoy that. We all crave occupation. Imprisonment with hard labor never seems to me so frightful as imprisonment and nothing to do does. Did you ever hear the story of the man who spent years in a dark dungeon idle and then found some pins in his coat, which he spent years in losing and crawling about and finding? Well, I have got rid of a wee morsel of this weary day in writing this, and you will get rid of another morsel in reading it. So we'll patch each other up and limp along together, and by and by go where there is no limping and no patching. The new serial, her Bible readings and painting, with visits to sick rooms and to the house of mourning during the early half of this year, left little time for correspondence. Her letters were few and brief, but they are marked, as was her life, by unusual quietness and depth of feeling. Her delight was still to speak in them a helpful and cheering word to souls struggling with their own imperfections or with trials of the way. 
A single extract will illustrate the gentle wisdom of her counsels. I think there is such a thing as peace of conscience even in this life. I do not mean careless peace or heedless peace. I mean calm consciousness of an understanding, so to speak, between the soul and its lord. A wife, for instance, may say and do things to her husband that show she is human. Yet at the same time, the two may live together loyally and be happy. And unless a Christian is aware of having on hand an idol dearer than God, I see no reason why he should not live in peace, even while aware that he is not yet finished, perfect. We love God more than we are aware. When he slays us, we trust in him. When he strikes us, we kiss his hand. Her own mood at this time was singularly grave and pensive. She felt more and more keenly the moral puzzle and contradictions of existence. From beginning to end in every aspect, she wrote to a friend, life grows more mysterious to me. Not to say queer, for that is not what I mean. Such strange things are all the time happening, and even good people doing and saying things that nearly drive one wild. We live in a mixed state, in a kind of seesaw. We go up, and then we go down. Go down, and then fly up. Still, this strange, ever-changing mystery of life, although it sometimes perplexed her in the extreme, did not make her unhappy. I have great sources of enjoyment, she adds, and do enjoy a good deal, infinitely more than I deserve. Early in June, she and the younger children went to Dorset. On reaching there, she wrote to her husband, Here we are, sitting by the fire in our dear little parlor. We made a very comfortable journey to Manchester, but the ride from there, here, was rather cheerless and cold, as they forgot to send wraps. The neighbors had sent in various good things, and the strawberries looked very nice. It rains, but M and I have surveyed the garden, and she says it is looking better than usual. I only wish you were here. Your love is intensely precious to me, as I know mine is to you. How thankful we ought to be that we have loved each other through thick and thin. This is God's gift. I cannot write legibly with this pencil, nor see very well, as it is a dark day, and yet too early for a lamp. The latter part of June, she made a short visit with her husband to Montreal. A pleasant incident of this journey was an excursion to Quebec, where two charming days were spent in seeing the falls of Montmorency, the Plains of Abraham, and other objects of interest in and about that remarkable city. During the ride in the cars from Montreal to St. Albans, she called the attention of her husband to a paragraph from an English newspaper containing the account of the death of a miner by an explosion, on whose breast was found a lock of hair inscribed with the name of Jesse. She remarked that the incident would serve as an excellent hint for a story. This was the origin of Gentleman Jim, the pathetic little tale published shortly after her death. Soon after her return from Montreal, she began painting in watercolors, which afforded her much delight during the rest of her life. The following notes to Mrs. Ellen S. Fisher of Brooklyn, dated July 2nd, will show how her lessons were taken. Will you kindly inform me as to your method of teaching your system of watercolors by mail and as to terms? I have not had time to do anything in that line, as I had to go to Canada. By and by, you can get delightful Chinese white paint there in tubes. My daughter says she thinks she heard you say that you would paint a little flower piece reasonably, or perhaps you have one to spare now. I should like a few wildflowers against a blue sky. I got half a dozen Parian vases in Montreal, each a group of three, and filled with daisies and few grasses, they are exquisite. Some of them are in imitation of the hollow toadstools one finds in the woods. To Mrs. Condict, Cowanfells, July 23, 1877. 
Cow and fells is a word we invented after spending no little time by referring to a spot in a favorite brook as the place where the old cow fell in. It looked so German and pleased us so much that we concluded to give our place that name. We are fond of odd names. We have a dog, Pharaoh, and a horse, Shoefly. Then we had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for cats. We had a dog named Penelope Ann, a splendid creature, but we had to part with her. My Bible reading began two weeks ago, and neither rain nor shine keeps people away. For a small village, the attendance is very large. I do not know how much good they do, but it is a comfort to try. I can't get over Miss Blank's tragical end. She must have suffered dreadfully. I do not doubt her present felicity, nor that she counts her life on earth as anything more than a moment's space. I do not feel sure that she did me any good. I saw so much that was morbid when she visited me here that I never enjoyed her as I did when I knew her less. But there is nothing morbid about her now. To Mrs. James Donaghy, Dorset, August 20th, 1877. Yesterday was the first fine day we have had in a long time, and as I sat enjoying it on the front porch, how I wished I could transport you here and share these mountains with you. Today is equally fine, and how gladly would I bottle it up and send it to you. A score of times I have asked myself why I do not bring you here, and then been reminded that you cannot leave your husband. I do not write many letters this summer. We have three or four guests nearly all the time. This uses up what little brain I have left, and by half past eight or nine I have to go to bed. I am unusually well, but work hard in the garden all the forenoon and get tired. Yesterday, the Reverend Mr. Reed of Flushing preached a most impressive sermon on the denial of self. In the afternoon, he preached to a neighborhood meeting at his own house, to which we three girls go, namely M, her friend Hattie Kay, and myself. I give Thursdays pretty much up to my Bible reading, studying for it in the morning and holding it at three in the afternoon. Utter unfitness for this or any other work for the master makes me very dependent on him. The service is largely attended, and how I get courage to speak to so many, I know not. A is gone to Portland and Prout's neck. Mr. P is unusually well this summer and has actually worked a little in my garden. He is going to Saratoga this weekend to visit Mrs. Bronson. M is a kind of supplement to her father. I love in her what I love in him, and she loves in me what he loves. We never had a jar in our lives and are more like twin sisters than mother and daughter. Hattie K is like a second M to me. At this moment, they are each painting a plate. They work all the morning in the garden and in the afternoon sit in my room sewing for the poor like two Dorcases, or drive or row on the pond. They also study their Greek Testament together like a pair of twins. Just here, Mr. P came driving up to take me out to make calls. We made three together and then I made three alone. Now we are going to have tea and should be glad if you could take it with us. To Mrs. Condict, Cowanfels, September 3rd, 1877. Since you left, I have been very busy in various ways, among other things helping Hattie collect her last trophies, pack her various plants, and the like. Then there is a woman close by who is very sick and very poor, and the parson and his wife, meaning himself and myself, must needs pack a big basket of bread, butter, tea, apples, etc. for her watchers and family, with extract of beef for her. That was real fun, as you may suppose. I mean to devote Thursdays to such doings, including the Bible readings. I took for my Bible reading this afternoon the subject of confession of sin, and should really like to know what the perfectionists would say to the passages of Scripture relating to it. However, I know they would explain them away or throw them under the table, as they do all the Bible says about the discipline of life. Our bad Pharaoh lifted up his voice in every hymn at Mrs. Reed's last Sunday, and little Albert fairly shrieked with laughter. 
If next Sunday is pleasant, we are to go to Paulet to preach. Good night. To Mrs. Fisher, Cowanfells, September 15th, 1877. Excuse my keeping your pictures so long. It is owing to my having so much company. We feel it a duty to share our delightful home here with friends. Will you send me some more pictures, and in your letter please tell me how to make the light green in the large arbutus leaf. I tried all sorts of experiments, but failed to get such a toned-down tint. My copy is pretty, as I have improved a good deal on the whole, but my work looks parvenu. I had to use a powerful magnifying glass to puzzle out your delicate touches, and your work bore the test. It is so well done. My work, viewed in the same way, is horrid. A has been to Portland and found there some exquisite plaques, some of them of a very delicate cream color, others of a least suspicion of pink. She began to paint thorn apples on one, but a day or two later found some of the foliage we had thrown away turned to most delicious browns, so she painted the leaves in those shades only, and the effect is richly and gravely autumnal. I hope your eyes are better. End of chapter 14, part 3.